If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 14 this morning. Genesis chapter 14. A few weeks ago, we were cleaning out one of our, uh, a filing cabinet, getting rid of it. We've been in our house for six months, and so we're at that uh, going through things that we should have gotten rid of six years ago or 16 years ago that have just followed us from move to move. And so at the bottom of this filing cabinet that we're getting rid of, I discovered this external hard drive that I had backed up our digital pictures about a decade ago, pre-iPhones. And it was interesting, Daniel and I have been married 19 years, and uh, 19 years in December, and these pictures that were stored on this external hard drive were about 18 years old and the oldest, so first anniversaries we had pictures of, first and early vacations as a couple. I mean, this was all pre-kids uh, pictures that we had. And then we had this phase where we started having our children, so we had uh, when we brought them home from the ho- a hospital to our house, when we had their first birthdays, all of those things were, were there in these pictures. And there was this rich way that these portraits really spoke to us. I mean, you know this when you're looking through old pictures. You obviously see questionable fashion choices. I mean, you, you see all kinds of things in your pictures, but there, there's an emotional way that, that pictures do speak to you. They speak to you when you look at the pictures and you're reminded of a loved one who you love so deeply who is now in heaven. And they speak in those emotional ties that we have to the past. There's a way in which our portraits speak of where we have been and where we are. And, and in many ways, they, they, they prophesy, they, they foreshadow of where we will go. Portraits speak. You know, in God's Word, they're portraits. They're portraits that we see in Scripture that have a way, if we not only look into the words of Scripture, but we listen not only with our ears, but our spiritual ears. We listen with our heart. There's a way that the Holy Spirit speaks to us through the portraits of Scripture. We're walking through this fall through the story of Abraham. We're in Genesis chapter 14. We're going to look at three portraits that speak very clearly to us, but it very well may be that some of you, you're visiting for the first time. And you say, even as you're looking at Genesis chapter 14, this is, this is strange scenery here. This is a part of Scripture that I'm not as familiar with. And so we need to, we need to frame these portraits. We need to be reminded of, of where we are in God's dealing with the Israelites in Genesis chapter 14. So let's back up a couple of chapters. Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abram, take your possessions, take your family, and leave the land that you know and go to the land that I'm going to show you. Why does God ask Abram to do this? So he can bless Abram, bless him with land, bless him with lineage, not only to be a blessing unto themselves, but to be a blessing to, be a blessing to all the nations. And so Abram obeys, and as we come to Genesis chapter 14, we discover that there is an already not yet dichotomy that occurs in Scripture. There already Abram is in the land, but they don't yet possess it fully, that there are others in the land. So we're not surprised then that, that as Abram is living in this land that God has promised to them, that there are going to be skirmishes and invasions. There are political manifestations that are occurring here that God's people become a part of. And, and this is the particular story. There was a king by the name of Ketelaomer. 
And Ketelaramir said to the five kings outside of the region of Sodom, said, you must pay tribute to me through your possessions and also through your produce. For 12 years, these five kings say yes, and they obey. And then on the 13th year, they say no longer. Well, Ketelaramir says, you know something? You're going to pay one way or the other. So he gets three allies. They sweep in to Sodom. They, they ransack the area. They take hostages. And it just so happened that Abram's nephew Lot and his family are dwelling not outside of Sodom, but they're dwelling in Sodom. So they're captured. Abram. Wealthy as he is, Abram, with the ability to do this, has 318 mercenaries, trained men. And they go on this rescue mission to bring back Abram's nephew, Lot, and his family. And then we pick up in Genesis chapter 14. After God has given Abram and these mercenaries the victory after God has given Abram the victory over these four kings, Ketelaramir being the front of them or at the, at, the, at the front and the leader of them, we read after his return from the defeat of Ketelaramir and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anar and Eshkol and Mamre take their share. Their three portraits that if we have spiritual ears to listen to these portraits, they speak to us. And the first portrait that I want you to discover in Genesis chapter 14 this morning is the king of Sodom, a portrait of worldly standards. The king of Sodom, a portrait of worldly standards. Notice with me that there are two kings that come out to meet Abram. There are two kings that meet him on his arrival here after this wonderful victory that God has provided to him. And the king of Sodom is mentioned first. Now, there's not this great description of the king of Sodom. We know he's ruling over a land that in Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, we know as a descriptor that this is a wicked land. So it's not going to be surprising to us that the leader of this land has wickedness in his heart also. Genesis 13, 13 reads that the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly, not just against one another, but against the Lord. So God, as a foreshadowing here in Genesis chapter 14, foreshadowing in Genesis chapter 13, God's going to judge and he will eventually destroy the city. And we will get to that as we walk this fall through the story of Abraham and Sarah. In verses 21 through 24, the king of Sodom says to Abram, he says, let me give you an offer. Instead of us having to battle over what you have uh, gotten in, in the spoils of victory, how about you return to me, my people, so I can rule over them, because the king's got to have people. 
to rule over. You don't have responsibility nor prestige nor power without your people. So he says to Abram, you keep all the loot of the war possession-wise. I get all the people of war. We can go our separate ways. There can be sort of an alliance here. You get all of the benefit without the responsibility. And so Abram is at a fork in the road here. Uh, no, reasonable, no reasonable man could, could truly resist this offer, right? I mean, God has promised him land. He's promised him lineage. He has promised him to be a blessing. But surely it is okay for Abram to profit off of this blessing, right? So the king of Sodom says for the right price, we could forge an alliance and we can become one together. Abram, you can have the benefit without the responsibility, but notice what the king of Sodom discovers. Well, he discovers the second portrait, Abram, a portrait of godly integrity. Notice that Abram's response, without any hesitation, without any disclaimers, without any uh, uh, him hauling through here, Abram resists the offer, and he says almost the opposite of what the king of Sodom offers. He says, I will not take that. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can reimburse me for my expenses. So he resists the temptation. Now, Abram is a wealthy man. We, we know that Abram is wealthy from Genesis chapter 12. We know after he sojourns in Genesis chapter 13 there in Egypt, we know that he receives, when, when they kick him out of Egypt, he gets more possessions, he gets more people. Any person as a rule of thumb who can form an army of 318 trained men as a person of wealth, usually, and so he goes, so, so Abram has got wealth, he's got position, he, he has got the blessing of God upon him. But notice what Abram resists, he resists greed. Uh, you see, a greedy person always says yes to more. A greedy person can never truly get enough, and ultimately a greedy person is, is someone who is possessed by their possessions. You remember the example in literature of Ebenezer Scrooge and Dickens in A Christmas Carol when he pauses to talk about the character of Ebenezer Scrooge. This is what he says, oh, but he was a tight, fisted hand at the grindstone. Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained, and as solitary as an oyster. So Abram guards his integrity. He resists the temptation to be beholden to the king of Sodom. He says yes to God. He says no to the king of Sodom here. He doesn't want to reign with a kingdom of compromise here. And Abram knew something that we need to be reminded of even in our life in the 21st century. And that is more is not always merrier. More is not always merrier. As a believer, there are times in your life professionally, and there are times in your life personally where you have to say no to opportunities. You have to say no to offers. You have to say no to the nets rung in the ladder because you know as a believer that this could ultimately compromise your character and compromise your commitment to God, to family, and to your values because more is not always merrier. And here's Abram. He has enough confidence 
in God's promise that he didn't feel that he had to be propped up by the king of Sodom's offer here. In verse 22, he, he lifts his hand and he praises God in response to the offer of the king of Sodom. And we have to ask ourselves, how can we respond like Abram? How can when we are given these offers in the fork of the roads of our lives, how can we respond out of the overflow of Christ in us and not pulled by the, just the undertow of the opportunities before us? And notice that Abram is, is couched in verse 22 as one who is confident in God. He is one, again, looking at verse 22, he says, To the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So he sees the offer from a godly perspective. So Abram is walking with God long before he comes to this offer from the king of Sodom. Abram comes out of the overflow of his walk of integrity with God that enables him in this moment of question to respond with a godly perspective. I remember this past week, I had, I had a day like many of you have here, and it might be every day that you have it. The day, the day started really early for me, and it ended pretty late. I was leaving the church about 8.30, 8.45, and on my way back home, I hadn't, because of the busyness of the day, had supper. I knew that dinner was uh, waiting, that the boys had already eaten, and Daniel had something and saved it back for me, but it was a long day, and I needed to unwind. It's only a five-minute drive from the church back to my house, but I, I, I needed to sort of unwind, so I stopped at the gas station, and for me to unwind with a little bit of caffeine, that's kind of how I unwind at 8.45 at night. It's a little bit of caffeine, and my, my drink of choice is Coke Zero. So I walked into the convenience store, grabbed a Coke Zero, was walking up to pay at the counter when someone called my name. It was a familiar voice. But it's a voice that I've not heard in a long time. It was the voice of Mr. Hostess. More particularly, it was the voice of Twinkies. There I was in a moment of compromise. And you'd be proud to know that I grabbed the Twinkie package and said to myself, I'm going to buy this tonight. <laughs> I deserve this tonight. So I threw it on the counter, began to pay, and uh, the cashier looked at me, and honestly, no pastoral hyperbole to this, honestly, she looked at me and she said, you know something, I didn't take you for a Twinkie man. <laughs> when was the last time you've been food shamed at a convenience store? That's what I'm wondering. But you would be proud of me. I was in a moment there. She, she, she was putting things in perspective, but I resisted the temptation to put that back. And I ate those Twinkies <laughs> proudly as an appetizer for the dinner that waited for me at home that was much healthier. Now, I don't stop at convenience stores and buy Twinkies most nights. I mean, that's, that's sort of an anomaly for me. But the reason that it was so appetizing and appealing to me was that I really was very hungry. I mean, there's just no other way to describe it. I was, I was ready to eat. And in that moment, 
of being hungry, I filled myself with what really we all know to be the junk food of the world. Now, there's a spiritual correlation to this. And that is, if you are spiritually famished, if you're spiritually starving, you will often say yes to the alluring junk food of the world. That, that you could say, I'm going to resist, I'm going to resist, I'm going to resist, but that we know is not the best strategy. Rather, people who consistently pass up the junk food of the world are consistently people who feast upon those things that are healthy. And their cravings change. And they're filled with what prevents them from heeding the call of the junk food that surrounds us in our culture. Now, here's the principle. What we fill ourselves with consistently determines what we will or will not resist. A person that feasts upon healthy choices ultimately has a has taste buds and has an expectation of cravings that have changed. And my question to you, my question to me is, what are we filling ourselves with? Don't be surprised if you're spiritually hungry that the world's allure seems irresistible to you. Abram lifted his hands to the Lord in response to the king of Sodom's offer. Why? Because he knew long before the hymn writer would would pose these lyrics, but he knew that if we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. The three portraits I want you to see. The first portrait is the portrait of the king of Sodom, a portrait of the world standards. The second portrait that I want you to discover is Abram, a portrait of godly integrity. And the final portrait that I want you to see and to hear from this morning is a portrait of Melchizedek, a portrait of the man who overcame the world. Melchizedek. Now, he is, let's dust off a seventh grade literary term. Let, let's, let's dust off a, a junior high characterization of literature, which is F-O-I-L, a literary foal. A foal is, is, is someone that is in contrast to the character that has come before him. And so we discover the king of Sodom's foal, which is Melchizedek. There's a sense in which what Melchizedek represents is in contrast to what the king of Sodom represents here. The king of Sodom has, as a contrast, the king of Salem, who is named Melchizedek, and he blesses Abram, and he says, Be blessed by God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God gave you, Melchizedek says to Abram, not through your ingenuity, not through your strategy, Not through how sharp your weapons were, but rather God gave you the victory over these four kings. So Melchizedek, from the outset, is peering in to Abram. Not only to Abram, but Abram's relationship to his God. And what we discover about Melchizedek, while he is mysterious, in his name, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He rules over Salem. Salem means peace. And so Melchizedek is perfectly bringing together in his rule in Genesis chapter 14, both peace and righteousness. So what we discover about Melchizedek that is so surprising surprising to us is not only is he a king, but he's also called the priest of the most high God. Now that should surprise us because he's a Canaanite king who is worshiping the same God of Abram. So not only is he a king, but he's a priest, 
Not only is he a priest, but he's a Canaanite. Not only is he a Canaanite, but he's worshiping the same God of Abram. Now, God has said to Abram, I'm going to bless all the nations through you. I'm going to bless through your lineage all of these nations that are dwelling around you as you are a missionary people. But one of the things that we discover about Scripture is, is that through Israel and even in spite of Israel, God's love and mercy overflows from the banks of even his chosen people. And so you discover these pictures of someone like Melchizedek that long before the Israelites are in the land fully, he is worshiping the same God of Abram. Ruth the Moabitess worships God, the God of Naomi. Uh, we discover Naaman the Syrian. Uh, uh, we, we discover uh, that the, they're the citizens of Nineveh who, upon hearing of Jonah's preaching of repentance to them, call out to the name. So that the grace of the Lord, it extends to even Rahab the prostitute. And so Melchizedek is, is someone that foreshadows that love that is going to go to all of us here as Gentiles as we gather together. Maybe many of us that are here as we gather together, not as those that have an ethnic Jewish background, but are Gentiles that are grafted into the love and to the mercy of our God. And so Abram's response is what? He tithes to him. I didn't see that coming. Did you see that coming? He is honoring Melchizedek and he's saying, you are greater than me. This is the father of this great nation. This is the one who has been given victory by God, who has now met his superior in this priest and king by the name of Melchizedek. Now he is mysterious. There's much we don't know about Melchizedek. And there's much from Genesis chapter 14. He just shows up and there he's gone. Abram is worshiping him. Not worshiping him, but is honoring him and, and paying a tithe to him, saying you are superior to me. And it's not surprising then that when the writer of Hebrews pauses to reflect upon who Jesus is, that he would come back and he would think about the role and ministry of Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 1, talks about how Jesus is our most high king and he is our high priest. For Melchizedek, Hebrews 7, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. And what did he do? He blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first. Notice what I said. By translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also king of Salem, that is king of peace. Righteousness and peace coming together. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, notice that word, circle it, put an asterisk beside it, resembling the Son of God, he continues to preach forever. There are many ways that we can go off and run into the gutter of interpretation. And instead of bowling a strike of correct interpretation, we're, we're off into the gutter here. And, and some of the ways that we can do that is by reading the Bible literally, but not reading the Bible literarily. Because notice the words that the writer of Hebrews is saying, that, that Jesus resembles, as the Son of God, he resembles Melchizedek. There's some that say that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 14. But there's nothing from the text that gives us that indication. The writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is like Melchizedek, but not like him. Melchizedek is a foreshadowing of Jesus as a high priest and as a king. 
Notice in this passage here in verse 3, he says he's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, again, the writer of Hebrews is saying he just shows up. We don't have a genealogy. He's not saying that he is deity. He is not saying that he is without a heritage. We just don't know about the heritage. Calvin, the great Genevan reformer, would pause upon Hebrews chapter 7, thinking about Genesis chapter 14. He would say, this is Melchizedek. Whoever he was is presented before us without any origin, as if he dropped from the clouds, and his name is buried without any mention of death. So Melchizedek is, in in best interpretation, I think, is a human priest who foreshadows our great high priest. Notice how the writer of Hebrews says in verse 14 of chapter 7, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and a connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priest. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him. Notice what the anonymous writer of Hebrews says. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is like no other high priest. He is a perfect priest, and he is a perfect king. Notice how Melchizedek brings priestly rule and kingly rule together. So Jesus Christ is both our high priest and our king of kings and lord of lords. As our high priest, as he ascended to the right-hand throne of the Father, he continues to make intercession for you and for me today. When we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, pray, our heavenly Father hears that through the intercessory work of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews would say, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness in our time of need. He is our great high priest who intercedes for us even today. Now, more than that, he is the king of kings. And the Paul would say as he's writing to the church at Philippi that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ brings together priestly reign and a kingly reign together. But just like Melchizedek, Jesus blends both perfect righteousness and perfect peace together. If Melchizedek, his name means righteousness and he rules over Salem, that means peace. So in Jesus Christ, we see righteousness and peace kiss one another in the incarnation and the finished work of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, think about this. Why do you need Jesus? Why do you need his atoning work? Why do you need the power of the resurrection for your life? Well, this, because you are unrighteous and you do not have peace. I'm unrighteous. I don't have peace. You see, the Bible is very clear about this. It is not only that we're born in sin, but that we, by nurture, are raised and we choose unrighteousness. That that's a part of who we are. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, would say it this way. There is no one who does good, not even one. Our feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace. Notice what he says, the way of peace we do not know. We are unrighteous. We not only sin by our nature, but we sin by our volitional choice. And this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life. 
That he is tempted in every way like us, but yet he is without sin. He has fulfilled all of the obligation of the law. And he is the only person that can look us in heaven into our face and say that I have never sinned. And we need one as our Savior and as our redemption. One who has lived among us but has not tasted the defeat of sin. And so he is our great high priest in the sense that he is perfectly righteous. And through his perfect righteous life, he has shown us a way to peace because of our unrighteousness. We are separate from God. We are separated from him. Just as Adam and Eve sinned, what was the first reaction? They had to leave the garden because there was enmity between them and a holy God. And so it is with your life and my life that we, as we are, cannot be in relationship with a holy God. And so there has to be a bridge. There has to be one who comes to rescue us. And that is the perfect, righteous, kingly work of Jesus Christ. And when you place your faith in him, he provides for you the way of peace. We are in enmity with God. We are enemies of God. But a way of peace is found in the finished work of the gospel. He is not one way to peace. He is the way to peace. The Bible teaches us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. I know That there might be some of you in this room that are considering Christianity and you say, that just sounds so narrow. But I have to tell you that the Bible clearly teaches us there are not multitudes of ways to a relationship with God, but He is the way. And He can only be the way because only He fulfills this righteous requirement and only He has been one who has taken our sins upon Him, upon the cross, and only Jesus has conquered the grave and conquered death. So I know you can get from here to Vesavia in many different ways. I I know if you wanted to go to Vesavia that you could go up Green Springs and it'll turn into Columbiana and you could turn at Shades Mountain and eventually you'd be at Vesavia. And I know if you wanted to go to Vesavia, you could say, I could go to Green Springs, I could turn left at Lakeshore, then I can go to 31. I know in life there can be a multitude of ways that you can get to your final destination, but if your final destination is a relationship with God, there is only one way to get there, and that way has a name, and that name is the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ, and at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Have you, have you confessed? Have you bowed your knee? You will bow your knee. We all will bow our knee. It will either be by our choice, by faith, or it will be by his sovereign reign and eternity to come. Has there been a time in your life that you've trusted in the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Abram meets Melchizedek, and you know what he does? He gives a tenth. He, he gives an act of worship because he has met someone that is a superior to him. And what God is asking us through his son is to give our life and trust him as our Savior and Lord. And not only trust him, but to follow him and serve him. Abram bowed before Melchizedek, and we are called to bow before the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Have you bowed before the perfect 
king of kings and prince of peace? Are you honoring him with your life at home? Are you honoring him with your mind? Are you honoring him at school? Are you honoring him as single? Are you honoring him as a college student? Are you honoring him in your marriage? Are you honoring him in your hobbies? Are you honoring him and feasting on him through his word in prayer? Are you ultimately spiritually hungry, spiritually dehydrated, and you have this insatiable, irresistible call of the world that you cannot resist because you're spiritually famished. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our all. Let us pray. Is that the name of Jesus that we bow? Is that the name of Jesus that we worship? It is that the name of Jesus that we find hope in life. I pray for that person today that is saying, I've found another way to hope and security, to salvation. It, it is the way of my moralistic strivings, it is the way of self-fulfillment. I pray today that you would show them it's a dead-end street that will never lead us to abundant life today and eternal life for all the tomorrows to come. I pray for the person today that without a shadow of a doubt has placed their faith in the finished work of the gospel, but today they are spiritually hungry. And we've not feasted upon your will, your way, your word, and it seems as if the, the cravings of the world are just all around us. And, and it seems to be this insatiable desire to turn to sin and to, instead of turning to our Savior. May we be reminded today that we are called to feast upon you. And that only you, only you, even in our Christian life, can fulfill us in the daily walk of obedience and following you. I pray today that you would draw us to you that we would worship you as we bow before you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.